I think the biggest thing is just reminding people there is no arrival to, ah, now everything's going to be great and perfect and zen, and I'm never going to suffer again. That, you know, it's all about this, this life we're in, if we're going to live it with our hearts and our eyes and our minds wide open, it will be lesson after lesson after lesson. And if nothing else, my mother's death taught me that to hear her on her deathbed, literal, like one foot on the other side, still asking for forgiveness from her children. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and the decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today I'm speaking with Becky Aw Jennison, creator of the Death Dialogues Project and Podcast. Thank you for being here, Becky. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm very, very happy to be with you today. I love your work. Oh, thank you, Becky. I love your work, actually. Oh, thank <laughs> um, you. Yeah. So, so for, for people who do not know what the Death Dialogues Project is, can you give sort of an explanation of what it is and how you start it? Sure. Um, so basically, I think I have to tell you a, a little bit of my own Death Dialogue to explain it, but I won't dig too deep into that right now. If you have questions about that, you can ask me later. But basically, my um, kind of soul connect pillar in my family growing up in a, in a very troubled household was my brother, Max, who was seven years older than me. And um, actually, three years ago today, he died of brain cancer. And that was a year-long process of where I was with him um, as much as I could be, and I was with him for the last week of his life. And then 10 months after that, my mother, who was living with us here in New Zealand at the ripe old age of 95, died a very mindful death. We were very, very open about death, and she'd had many conversations about it. And in the last six months of her life, she basically dialogued her dying. But it was actually before she died that I was um, getting ready to stage the Vagina Monologues for um, V-Day, which is an international protest, um, protesting violence uh, against women and children. And I've often felt like I have my brother's name's Max. I often feel like I have little Max whispers because he was very much a justice seeker, social action, beautiful, kind fellow that many, many people called their best friend. And um, I felt like I had this little whisper like, wow, we really need to do this with death. And mind you, I've had a career in the helping field actually starting to put myself through school working as a nurse's aide in a nursing home. And then I worked on a um, unit or a, I floated in a hospital and worked. So I was started to be introduced to death in that way. And it was very, very frustrated about the institutionalized process um, that they what had. What were you hospital. seeing? What were you seeing? So, so to, to get myself oriented in time and make sure yes. I'm following this, it sounds like prior to this deeper dive you've done into the, the world of celebrating and documenting death, you had some experience in the field of health and maybe mental health support, and you had some experience with death initially. 
True, true. So I was young when I went to nursing school. My father died of a brain aneurysm um, in 1982. I would have been 19. I was by his bedside for that. But what I saw working in the hospitals, um, you know, was just not a sacredness held around the dying process or afterwards when the nursing staff is taking care of the body. And it got to be where if I was in that situation, sometimes I would just ask people to leave the room and let me do it. Are you talking about um, a lack of respect or um, peace in the room during the end days, you know, aside from just the physical handling? So both. So, so, you know, in nursing, you get report at the beginning of a shift and you might hear, you know, the person is having chain stokes, which is always a sign that death is somewhat imminent. Or even, you know, maybe it's, well, this person probably doesn't have more than a couple days left. And again, this was back in the days when we let people stay in the hospital longer. HMOs hadn't come into play. So mm-hmm. it wasn't pushing people out the door. And it, now, mind you, I went to school so I could go on to become a therapist and talk to people. So I was always driven to sit by people's bedsides and spend time with them because that's what they wanted. And mm-hmm. it, it, and even in the nursing home setting, it just wasn't the norm. We weren't taught to be human with other people at end of life. Okay. It was more that, you know, we're out here somewhere out of this circle that a family should be in or a, a person's loved one should be in. And many, many times there was no one with those people Mm. in that circle. So I saw that and um, didn't like, didn't feel comfortable with that. Throughout my history working as well, I saw the avoidance of talking about death with, by the health professionals, with um, the patient themselves or with the family. So um, I feel like there's a mentality of somehow death is losing you know, they've Mm. put all this money into school and they've done all this work with their career and it's a when to save the life. But what we've really missed out on is the conversations and how we need to be taught those because most people don't do it. And I would argue they don't do it because they haven't come to terms with death for themselves. So, um, are you saying that the, the people dealing with death in the hospital or in these facilities personally haven't dealt with death, which is why they're not approaching it the way that they could? Yes. I'm Mm -hmm. saying many people haven't. And the ones that have are those ones that you're, you know, that families walk away and say, I'll never forget that person. You know, I'll remember that person's name or I'll remember that person and how they spent time with us and the conversations they had. But a large percentage of the people are just extremely avoidant they still might be beautiful people. They still might be great workers. But in those situations, and I've seen it happen with doctors as well, um, they can just be very avoidant. We, we live in a culture, and especially in the medical field, um, death, we avoid death. You know, somehow if we don't talk about it, it won't happen to us. Um, <laughs> but in the hospital setting, in the medical setting, traditional medicine, and I do believe there's a shift happening here, but in traditional medicine, we look at death as a failure. You know, everything, pull out all the stops. And there is not, uh, unless you're a palliative care doctor or a gifted doctor, which there are, there are those people who can have the conversations about what's going on in certain situations 
and talk about rather than just, you know, well, let's try this, let's try this. Because what you see at end of life many times for people is that actually they're put into situations that are almost torturous with the interventions that they've had when if the doctor maybe would do that full body scan and see that the brain, you know, the, the cancer had metastasized to the brain, et cetera, be a little bit more proactive with that, could have some good information to tell a family like, you know, you could do this and maybe not even have a month, or you could do this and have a month where you're actively being with your family member while they're dying or in the dying process and can be open and vocal about it and, you know, get people around and that type of thing. So it's just a totally different paradigm it creates when you can have those conversations. It's it's curious to me and surprising, but maybe I shouldn't be surprised, that people who are working with patients are uncomfortable or unsettled or unable to really connect with people who are at the end of their lives. Were you surprised to find that? Um, I think I was surprised, but I was so young. I think I think it was more that I knew this didn't resonate. This didn't feel right. And again, you know, I do want to stress that we are in a wave of much more fluency surrounding death. Mm-hmm. And I have every hope that with the new doctors coming up and people that have um, been around after I was in the scene, that that mm-hmm. is improving. I'm just talking about my historical experience, which was many moons ago. And then I did as a, um, a clinical therapist and kind of mind-body practitioner work with heart patients for a while. And it was a mixed bag with that as well. And I think it's just, you know, Renee, when you look at, look at the people around us, how many people talk about death? I've seen this with my productions that I did where people don't want to put the word vagina up on their storefront and they also don't want to put the word death. I mean, I couldn't have picked two more (laughs) avoidant words. We... (laughs) It's just fascinating, really, that well, you know, right. many, many people don't want to talk about it. And it's, you know, with the vagina monologues, because this is, this is all, it all kind of is connected here because you were working in this field and you were also used to act. Is that right? I did. Um, I was involved in productions. Yes. I did some acting, I, some assistant directing. I wasn't yeah. threatened by the process. You know, I felt comfortable enough. And the I vagina monologues, I mean, that's been around, has it, is it at least two decades now? Or, yes, I mean, a it's been a long time. Years. Yeah, 22 right. years. Right. So, so in that sense, you would think that people would have some familiarity with the production, if not comfort with the word, but I guess not. It's still always a little bit of a cringe for people who are not ready, right? Well, and it's probably a good time to mention that I'm down under, I'm in New Zealand and I'm in a um, two hours north of um, Auckland in Whangarei and it's it's a bit of a rural kind of community. And we mm-hmm. sold out three shows because they were so excited about it. They Many, many people hadn't heard of it or seen it. Wow. Yeah, so, so that was exciting. How come, how did you find yourself in New Zealand? I, I have to ask, where are you from originally and how did you end up over there? So um, I was born and my mother's side of the family was in Oklahoma. And then we moved to Illinois, which is where my dad originated from. And um, my adult family, you know, my, my kids and me as an adult, I lived in Springfield, Illinois, which is the state capital. 
And that's where I met my husband. And my husband's British. And Mm -hmm. if you don't realize it, Europeans, New Zealanders, people from other countries um, are a lot more free about traveling, I think, than what my experience was in America. I mean, I had friends Mm -hmm. that were certainly world travelers, but it wasn't the norm uh, where in other countries, there's definitely the pull, like, I need to see the world. And Mm -hmm. so he was at a point in his career as a cardiologist that he could take a break. And he'd always been intrigued about New Zealand. And I have to tell you, I don't know if you've had these experience, but sometimes I feel like it's just synchronistic flow that like Mm -hmm. you just plant this little seed and then things just flow. And that's what happened when we ended up here. He got an offer to come here and we've ended up loving it. And our adult children, I feel like it's a place for them to have as a haven and Mm -hmm. they come and go. And that part's been hard being for me, especially being away from the children, but you know, thank goodness for the internet. If it wasn't for that, yeah. I couldn't have done it at all. You know, so you're talking about doing the vagina monologues in rural, in a rural part of New Zealand and selling out. And then when when you decided that you needed to do a death dialogues project, how did that come into being? So I started just um, writing a little bit. And basically what I felt was I'd never written a play and I do, you know, just a little writing on the side. And I thought, I'm going to start collecting interviews like Evensler did about vaginas. Then I'm going to do it mm-hmm. about death. And I did. And I started doing that. And um, the very first one I did was an interview with a, a mom whose little boy had been diagnosed with brain cancer at the age of five. And she, he died mm-hmm. at the age of seven. And So I took that interview and tried to pare that down. What I ended up deciding to do, and again, I don't know if you caught me saying earlier, this is just all, I let it just be organic, like Mm -hmm. what I'm drawn to, what feels right. And it came to me, I don't know that I'll ever be able to include that bit in a play per se and get the full feel of it. And it was such a rich story, this woman, this mom was so eloquent and such deep feeling. And it was such a story. And um, I thought, you know what I'll do for our community is I'll stageable uh, or I'll um, present a debut. So we did a death dialogues uh, project debut. And it happened to correlate, we scheduled it to correlate with his birthday. He had been um, deceased for many years by that time. And so we, so it ended up being a beautiful, beautiful honoring. So basically just um, introduce the project. This is what we're about. And we'd like to give you an example mm-hmm. with this beautiful story. And it ended up, um, we had a couple other speakers. Our community has a little drop in choir that the mom was involved in. And they sang a song at it. And people wouldn't leave. They stayed. They you know, subgrouped, the buzz was huge. And um, just so, so much feedback about you have to keep doing this. And so the following April, that would have been this past April 2019, what I was led to do was contact some of the women that I had interviewed. And a couple of them I knew personally and asked them if they 
I was thinking of um, the moth, the story slams. Are you familiar with those? Mm. Yeah. So I asked them um, if they would be interested in themselves, me not doing it, condensing their stories into five minutes or so. And so we staged an evening of storytelling. And again, um, the, the, the feedback was just profound. Beyond just the hunch you had, you know, that this was going to be something necessary and good and healing. What are people getting from this? Well, what I, what I say is, you know, because I am an academic, I've taught counseling, I've, I've studied, 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 and nothing prepared me. I, you know, I'd had my, my father, you know, wasn't the sole connect that my mother and my brother were to me. And I had gone with that. And that brought me to my knees at that age, you know, at that young age. But through my training, that was the only reference that was the closest reference I had with the very little bit of training we did surrounding grief and loss and um, sitting with people in that, doing therapy with people in that. And um, what I've come to believe now coming out this other side of this is the only way we can ever, ever get a glimpse of what might this might feel like to us or feel a sense of oh, exhale, somebody gets me, is hearing other people's stories. Um, repeatedly, mm-hmm. you hear from people, you know, don't, don't placate me. Don't tell me how I should feel. Don't tell me that I need to be over it by now. You know, and, and, I, I have some kindness for people that use those words because everybody's everybody's struggling with a loss, right? Everybody's, um, and many, many people have had profound loss. So we never know what the deliverer of those messages is saying. But there's just so much time that a person that's experienced deep loss has on their own that I think for those people, those stories are um, it's just very, very supportive. The other thing I think is for people like you and me who just are fascinated by people's stories. You know, they're just fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating to hear how, like, I like to interview people like death doulas as well, because that's basically what I did with my mom and my brother. And it's we're fairly new here and keeping death in the home. Yeah. Can you share what, share what a death doula does? Cause I do know, I, I saw that some of what you'd written was that what's happened for, you know, taking, um, taking agency over our birth experiences is, is what's happening and what you hope to, to change with death. And, you know, that's part of being a death doula. So can you explain a little bit about that for people who may not have heard? Certainly. And, and first I'd like to preface it with, I'm a firm believer as I am with birth, that it's all about choice. You know, I don't feel like there's absolutely one way, but I do believe that it's important that we have a full spectrum of choice. And, um, so I'll just kind of tell you what my experience was with my family. For people that are interested, there's a beautiful documentary called Zen and the Art of Dying. I've actually just this past October done a training with her and um, a death walker training. But I realized after that, I'm not really a death walker. I'm a death talker. (laughs) But it (laughs) it was a beautiful, beautiful training. And she's a bit of an icon to me. And you can hear her on one of the episodes. But and I have another woman, Lucinda Herring from the States, who was very much a forerunner in bringing, um, taking, bringing death back into the home. And now, 
you know, to take you back, I'm raised by a depression era mom that grew up in rural Oklahoma, uh, poverty stricken, and had been raised with stories about how death was done in the home and how she had witnessed that. Mm -hmm. So I had a sense of a normality there with that. And my mother had always hearkened back to that time and wished that we could do things like that. So, so I know that was in my DNA anyway. So when, when, when my brother, um, was took the final turn and I got on the plane to go back over there. I'd just been there with him recently. I just planted the seed. His lovely, lovely, very, very sensible wife to, you know, just know if he, if he passes on before I get there, just know you don't have to call the 911 and you don't have to call the funeral home. Have some time with him. Sometime that can be the most beautiful mm-hmm. time. Well, when I got there, he lived another year or lived another year, I wish, lived another week. And um, I just went into full nursing mode, taking care of him. And that's when mm-hmm. I looked at my um, sister in law and I hadn't dug deep into um, research or what was going on in the death scene. And I looked at her and I said, This feels so much like being a birth doula. This is like, so it's just comfort measures. And I was doing nursing care as well, you know, as far as what needed to be done. We had, we just gotten hospice involved. So they really didn't have time or didn't have the need to come except an aide came a couple times to give him a bath. And, um, but they mm-hmm. had medicine for us, etc. So we just took that all over. We didn't leave aside and, you know, beautiful comfort measures. And, you know, I had um, just music going softly for him. Uh, really, I think I, I, I went into like a kind of a protective mode, mama bear mode a bit, you know, just making sure the pot, the energy around him was very positive. And, um, you know, if it got too loud about in the room, you know, about things that, that weren't related, you know, just trying to gently move people into another place of a house and, um, I think everybody, our family was just really, really beautiful with all of that. And um, my brother, when I had left Max after the first time, um, we knew he had brain cancer. They didn't diagnose it till six months in. And he almost died because they'd taken him off of his met all the medicine he was on so they could get a brain biopsy. And can you, can you spend a little bit of time talking about, um, you reference, I think, on your website for Death Dialogues, a call that you got, um, and he was concerned about his memory. That, and yes. do you? Yes. So that was um, January second, twenty seventeen, and um, Max had just been with me about seven months before that. And thank goodness we'd had this amazing time together here in New mm-hmm. Zealand, and. Um, so the, exactly, almost exactly a year before he died in 2017. And yeah, so he was, we just had a really tight relationship and just mega phone calls, mega phone calls. So you said that you had a troubled childhood, which yes, is that, yes. were you both in that same type of, um, the same type of danger or whatever was going on at the same time? Yes. And he was seven years older than me. So he always had a lot of guilt for leaving me behind there. And that's just something that all throughout our adult life that would come up for him occasionally, just really begging forgiveness, which... Did you feel like he had to? 
no, not at all. I was always just like, I am so happy you guys got out of there. I have three older brothers, you know, like that did not enter my mind. The only mm-hmm. thing that entered my mind was how much it, you know, would make sense to get out of there as far as you could. But, you know, when your heart hurts for something like that, sometimes the words just fall on deaf ears. So it it would come up for him occasionally. But But he did, you know, one of the things back to when everything changed for me is um, I got out of, he, he was just my teacher as a young child. Like he had just a great sense of what right and wrong and justice. And I was being mentored in that way until he left and, and after he left. And um, I, my parents who kept telling me, you know, I'm going to college, I'm going to college. I got excited about going to college the day after I, graduated high school, we get in the car to go to a different brother's home down in Texas. And they end up leaving me there and telling me, we can't afford to take put you in college. What were you thinking? And I end up having a really, really not healthy year down there. And at one point, Max is just, you know, close to a year of being down there says, that's it. I'm sending you a ticket. You're coming and living with me. You know, you're, you're going to school. You're getting, things are, things are going to be different. And they were, and it was a bit of a miracle. So that was, that was the first time Max changed everything for me. But then when that phone call came, he said back, I just want to process something with you. Please, please promise me. You're not going to say anything to anybody. I haven't talked to Barb. I haven't talked to anybody, um, Mm -hmm. but I'm really, really worried. I can't remember my computer password. They had moved recently. He was a um, federal labor mediator and, you know, really looked at with high regard in his field. And he'd moved from a big, big office in St. Louis to Michigan where his wife had been, had lived. And in hindsight, such a beautiful, beautiful thing that they did move. But within a few months, um, this was what happened to him. And so I, I kind of tried to do a little mini assessment while we we're talking and he was tracking otherwise. And mm-hmm. um, I said, you know, Max, I think it might, you've got so much going on. Look at everything you've changed. You've changed your office. You've changed the space you've been in, new, new employees, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, wow, that really resonates. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we had this big long talk and my mom was here then our mom was here then and he hadn't wanted to talk to her. And I said, um, hey, Max, we got to go run some errands. I hear mom getting up. Do you want to talk with her after all? And he said, yeah, 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 put me on. So I'm like, great, love you, bye. And put her on, said, you know, you guys just hang up when you're done. Mom will be back in a little bit. Came back within the hour, and my mom is standing at the door just white as a ghost. And she said, Becky, do you think Max was drinking? Which wasn't an issue for him. And I said, "Uh, no. What's going on? She said, something's wrong. She said, um, I brought up Tim. Tim was my cousin who had died, and Max had done his eulogy at his funeral, had had me write a bit for it, and he wrote it, and, and it was a very traumatic death. And um, she had brought up that cousin, and he didn't remember that he had died and reacted as if it was the first time that he had ever heard it grieving sobbing. So um, I had to, of course, get in contact with my sister-in-law and say, yeah, something's got to be done. And that from then on, it just went very, very quickly. And 
you know. So being there, being present, but then after he died, um, and we were all with him, everybody that was there, you know, were in close proximity. After he died, it was the idea of, I want us to take care of his body. You know, I want us. And then that progressed into, and I, I think one point I want to say here, which was my oldest brother, who's 15 years older than me, would say to people, which is, when I heard her say that, I thought, this is crazy. And he stood at the head of Max's bed, and his wife insisted on helping. And he said it ended up being the most moving thing he'd ever witnessed in his life. So um, Barb and the kids went and got the clo- his clothes. And then we proceeded to contact a beautiful funeral home. I'd asked, um, I'd asked the social worker with hospice to recommend who she thought might be most flexible in case mm-hmm. we wanted to do things a little bit different. And he said, I know there's a movement coming. We haven't had anybody do this, not embalm and keep a body, a person home. He said, but I, you can keep him as long as you want. Just call us. You can call us day or night and we will be there within an hour. If you want to keep him home until the funeral, you can do that. And, um, his wife is a bit more reserved and the children, his, his, those two children, he's had as an adult son as well, but those two children are quite quiet and reserved. And I didn't know how this was going to go. And I would hear Barb walk up to them and say, is it time for dad to go yet? Do you, do you want them to come pick him up? And they'd shake their heads. No. Until finally there was the time. And I believe it was the night before his funeral where we, and I, you know, there would be fleeting moments during this process because it was beautiful and tragic at the same time. And we gathered as a family and we told stories and we surrounded him. Somebody was always with him. And my musician friend came and sang songs and my musician son, you know, sang songs. And then at night we'd light candles during, and I always had peppermint flowing because I knew you know, some people could have issues with, and I never wanted them to think, you know what I mean? I just wanted this pure, pure, fresh feeling. Mm-hmm. We had flowers. He, he had a, a blanket that I'd crocheted him that people had written beautiful wishes and prayers on ribbon on him. Everybody wanted that on him. All of the kids, everybody were writing them letters, putting them in his pockets. I can't even, and I t- just told Barb, I said, hey, you know, this right here, this is three years of therapy that's happening in three days. Um, it was amazing stuff. And there was always the knowing this is what he would want. And then fleeting thoughts of how are we going to let him go? How can this happen? How can we, how are we, you know, what's going to happen? And there's just something magical that happens after a period of time. It's just like, it's okay now. And, um, we were, you know, the kids were ready and everybody was ready. And there was even as he, as he was taken out on the stretcher, you know, there was some chattering going on in the background. And, Hmm. um, we walked outside Barb and his wife and my older brother and me. And, um, we had a couple candles lit on the front porch. We did it at night. We didn't plan to, but I was happy because then it wasn't, you know, something that the neighborhood's wondering what's going on. And, um, everybody was just so super respectful. And, you know, I just have this vision of watching um, my older brother follow the van down the driveway. My mom would remind me through this whole thing, you know, 
he potty trained Max because there was such a gap in our ages. So for him, you know, it was a really out of order death. It was, as he said at his funeral, you know, Max was supposed to be, Max was our great speaker of the family. The orator always asked to do eulogies. And he said, you know, this wasn't supposed to happen this way. This was supposed to be him doing it for me. So that beautiful, beautiful experience. And that's what death dueling can look like. It looks like for different for other. It's basically how Mm -hmm. as a death doula, you define the work. And then my mother heard how we handled the situation with Max. And she was just so happy about that and asked if we would do the same for her here. And we did. And she died here at home. And, and that is just, we could do a whole episode on that magical story, how for the six months, you know, she was processing our home life and processing her, her, um, oh, I don't want to say her implication in it all. But of course, you know, there's always in, in a family that's had a lot of disruption, you know, she was Mm -hmm. coming to terms with with what that meant for her, um, processed a, a lot of things, talked openly about death, talked openly about dying, um, was dwindling. And I went off to a uh, silent retreat at an ashram up north. I had canceled it one other time because my mom hmm. had gotten a cold like six months earlier and I was worried about her. And she said, please, please, please go. And the entire time I was there, I would get up at night and I would go under the stars and I would just say, if there's a team up there, please help me with this. Everybody thought I was so strong mm-hmm. and I could do it. And she thought I was so strong. But I, the idea of doing the same thing I'd done with my brother, with my mother, just was bringing me to my knees, even going there. And, oh, it was, it's hard. It's beautiful, beautiful. But when, you're, you, when those are your soulmate people, you know, it's hard work. It's heart-wrenching work. Um, especially. Yeah, yeah, it just, it's just that it just hits your heart, heart, or my heart, I'm a deep, deep feeler and just hits my heart so deeply. And what happened was, I kid you not, I come home, I go into her room, and she's sitting on the side of her bed. And I'm like, look at you, you're looking, you know, you're up, you're at the side of your bed, because my husband warned me, he's like, there has been a decline since you left but not enough that I felt like I needed to call you or cause you know, there's no phones. He would have had to contact the ashram. And um, he said that our, our, she looked at me and she said, this is it. I'm dying now. I'm, I'm going to do it now. And I kid you not 24 hours later, she took her last breath. And I, it was a very, very mindful. She, she, at that moment, I, she starts rattling names off and record, you know, telling me of goodbyes. I've got a seven minute video because I said, mom, do you want to record this so I can share it with everybody? And you have, are really saying your own goodbye. And I've got this beautiful video of my mother. And the last thing she does on it is blows three kisses and in her little Southern accent, waves her hand and says, bye-bye. Mm-hmm. It's the most precious love filled gift. Um, and then at her moment of death, for about 12 hours, we talked through it. And um, she was getting tired. I mean, you know, I talked and she would respond and she would talk a little bit. But there were times, you know, she she um, started talk, calling her mom, mama, mama, which is what she called her mom. And I said, 
And she was talking, she kept, she never said these words. She was extremely Christian. She had never said the words crossing over before in her life and the other side. And that's the only language she used during that 24 hours was crossing over and going to the other. Why in the world when you're so close and ready to go, does it take this long to get to the other side? That was some of her early commentary. And then, um, and, you know, it got to, and oh, one of her last things, my daughter, who she's really close to, Rachel, you know, Rachel, tell him I'm sorry. And I know that was to my siblings and me, you know, for keeping us in a home with a, an abusive father. And um, she was so full of love. We held vigil. I stayed with her for three days. We, my husband's in the background. She didn't want to go through a funeral home at all because it's all about the money, you know, and I don't want them making money off of, you know, so, and she had never really wanted to be cremated, but had decided about two months or three months earlier, yes, just go on and cremate me and keep the ashes and give them when I'm going no longer, you know, with us, they go to my daughter and that type of thing. And um, so my husband's in the background doing all of the work that you have to do. The doctor came, who's a friend of ours as well. And um, nice, nice man. And, um, you know, we did everything that you do with, with dressing her and cleaning her and oil, like I did with Max, um, you know, using some beautiful frankincense and, um, lavender and had her room beautiful, had her beautiful. And, um, we spent time with her and I videoed with family as much as we could. And, if they wanted to. And then we had a beautiful service for her and our, our house overlooks this bucolic view, which she thought was paradise. She would always say, I thought you had to die to go to paradise, but here I am. And overlooks a little church in the country used to be a church. It just is just again, bucolic and have opening up the full doors that lead out Mm -hmm. to that patio. And so people could come in and see her. Those doors were open the entire time. And the little Texas minister that she had made friends with from the hospital, because she'd have to go get blood. She had a a blood disorder where she had to get blood once a month Mm -hmm. or once every two months and would go to this prayer meeting with these ladies. Um, And one of them, they both sang beautifully. And um, so they did songs, they had a keyboard but we also all get, got up and spoke and just our very best friends were here. And it was beautiful. And then we did, you know, my husband wanted to bring her in the car or in a vehicle. And I just kind of drew the line at that. <laughs> it was like, you got to go with your gut in the moment, right? And we had her on this plank that we knew we had to have for creation. And I'll tell you, the most, <laughs> my, the most heart-wrenching was I went out to our garden and I'm picking lavender fronds to wrap with her in her shroud before she goes. And um, that just kind of brought me to my knees. And we got a hold of the Moldy um, funeral home here, and they agreed just to come pick her up in a hearse, which I just felt for her was just so apropos. And it comes up and it ends up, it's an American Cadillac, which was, he he commented on that. It's like, yes, full circle. And we followed that. And as I'm, you know, how many times we had played the old fashioned, will the circle be unbroken together, mom and I, and um, I had an ongoing playlist and I'll be darned if as that um, hearse is winding up the road and I can see it come and that song is playing 
and, um, and it's talking about for to carry my mother away. And uh, yeah, then we get behind it and follow it to the crematorium. And that was our story in these two situations, a little bit different in the States, you know, they're just tiptoeing more to you taking more ownership. Yeah. So, you know, there needed to be the funeral home involvement. But again, we were blessed with this man's um, kindness and wanting to to be open and have more diverse treatment of families and situations. And then here in New Zealand, it's much, much more progressive in that way. We were still jumping some hurdles by not going through um, anybody else to make the arrangements. Like do, you know, we did it, what they call here, DIY, do it yourself. We totally did the DIY way. And and there's a huge sense of fulfillment with that, knowing that that's what she wanted. Do you know what it was about picking the lavender at the very end that was the moment for you? As far as emotional breakdown, is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was just like there was this overwhelming, I mean, I'm feeling a little bit now just going back there with you. There was just this overwhelming moment of would I have ever pictured my mother's death coming full circle like this and the, and at once it was the the gifts like how did she and this was a lady that didn't travel you know how did she end up with me <laughs> for the last two years of her life how lucky was I oh my gosh how big and tough this has been as we've known she was on her death trajectory and then just just it was almost like I could see myself doing it just the beauty the elegance that I'm actually picking these large lavender fronds just so when my mother is pushed into that fire, there's just another sensorial thing of beauty happening for her. Mm-hmm. It was how, how I felt mm-hmm. about it. I was led to do it. I mean, I don't know why I did it. it. I hadn't thought about it before, but it was just, yeah, it was almost as if this woman who birthed me, you know, this such full circle. You know, I just birthed yeah. her in a way. Yeah. Do you do you think that it ever gets um, too hard at all? I mean, you've been through these two very close um, experiences on your terms and on the terms that your loved ones wanted. And you hear these stories all the time. And I wonder if it ever gets hard for you. It has gotten hard for me at times. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, used to call myself a self-care warrior. So I'm really in tune with, um, taking care of myself, mind, body, spirit when I need to. I do think that when I look at what I've actually pulled off in the last three years, um, actually two and a half was probably when the project started. I mean, any bystander could argue that, yeah, part of my grieving process was throwing myself into that. But there was also a lot of space. I mean, I do, I do remember specifically saying to a friend after a particularly heavy story that someone shared with me that, yeah, I just need to take a moment. But on the other hand, just remember that my career was as a therapist. So I'm used to holding... Mm-hmm big, heavy stories in confidence. And um, that was something that you just, 
I had to learn early, early, early on in my career is a bit of compartmentalization. And, um, but of course these, these stories, um, of deep loss and, and people losing children and partners and, um, you know, just all sorts of different types of stories. They, I'm so with the person in the moment. You can probably relate to this with your conversations. I'm so with the person in the moment and I'm feeling it and I'm in the room with them. Um, and then I think it's part of our, the process of what we're doing and putting these stories out in the world. It's almost like I just release it then. I'm able to release it. I like to, when I'm done with mm-hmm. the story, boom, boom, boom. Like I incorporate the any editing I have to do and getting it out there. And so when I get off my call, I'm, I'm wrapping that up as much as I can. So I can release it then. That's mm-hmm. a bit of self-care for Which me is, with that. Right. It's part of the process yeah. for you um, that you're so present in the moment and the gift. I mean, I think the gift is the story they're sharing, but also what you're giving them by taking the story for them. Well, thank you. And then it sounds like, yeah. And then it's time to be done with that story, right? Because you can't hold on to everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And I do feel, I mean, everybody's grief trajectory, trajectory is so different, but I have felt, I had a, a bit of a health scare myself this past year and I felt a shift. Yeah. You mentioned that. Are you doing I'm fine. okay? I'm great. I just had a tumor and they thought it might've been mm-hmm. something scary when in fact it was actually like leaking stuff in my body and making me sick. Mm-hmm. So you know, it was kind of, and, and it really let me um, put myself in that place a bit more. And, you know, there was, you know, I found like, there was no why me, if it was something like that, there was a <laughs> why not me after all the stories I've heard. But, right, right. But, but also what came up with my grief process was there was just one moment that I was really, I just was feeling punk, just not good. And, I just had this, you know, because both Max and mom were, you know, unwell. They were not well. And I just thought, fly free. You know, I am so happy you're not feeling like this. You know, I, it just gave me a different push with my grief. And I feel like since that time, every day I've been a little bit lighter. And even now, um, coming, you know, as we're into 2020, I've written, I've written, you know, some poetry and I've written bits and pieces, but I have not, I, that was what was going to be too much for me with my grief was if I sat down, mm. I did get my parent, my, my mom's and my brother's stories out. Cause I had to just like, okay, mm-hmm. there it is. And I put that on my blog, my personal blog in like three, three, a series of three posts. But after that, I, I couldn't dive into that. And so my writing was just real fragmented and all over. And like, just now I'm starting to be like, kind of on fire. What about the idea of your husband and your kids? Like, what's their take on all this? And how do they handle the fact that they're, that you are doing this work? Yeah, so I think our adult kids, um, the ones I've talked to, are actually, um, you know, very supportive. And I think the, the idea, um, of, you know, taking it away from patriarchy, the death away from patriarchy is something my kid, my adult kids are definitely down with. So that part intrigues Mm -hmm. them. And then I can't tell you the beauty of the connection with my kids during Max's 
dine time. And the month that we were there, we were there before I was there before and they all came. And, um, you know, once you experience that, it's just a level of full spectrum loving that we don't get in day to day life. And so I feel if it's possible, even a greater bond with them and then watching the dynamic of not only them loving and grieving this amazing uncle that loved them so deeply, but also, um, not caretaking me, but definitely loving me in a, uh, in a more broad way. Um, yeah, there was just some real, so they've seen that. So they know what it's about and they know what that vigil's about and they know what I'm talking about. So that part, I think they're very supportive of my 15 year old is actually on an episode with me, one of the early episodes. And so you can Um. hear him say what it was like having that whole experience of grandma in the house that entire time and having her body with us. And he talks really from the heart. Hmm. This is these experiences of grieving and uh, being with people in their very last time here on the planet is uh, has been moving and, and very close for you. What about your father, for example, would you have been able to do this kind of death for someone who you had a troubled past with, do you think? You are so good. <laughs> that is a great question. Oh my gosh. <sighs> no, that is a wonderful question. And it's something that I've thought about a lot because um, just of the dynamics in our family. And personally, for me, I. I, you know, I don't even want to say this out loud, you know, but my family, my people I gave birth to, you know, my husband, um, that soul group, I would, I would do anything that I could or would need to, or would have to at this point, I think for people in my family, they have their own people to do that with and they've seen how things can be done a bit differently if they choose to. But as I inferred earlier, I could do it probably with strangers, you know, and it just not pull my heart out and stomp on it as much as it did with my loved ones. But I don't want to say that in a way that dissuades anybody from looking into that because it's also, I can't even tell you what kind of honor I feel that I had that space with my, with my family. And again, those two people, they were my lifelong confidence. They were my mental health. They were my soul connects. I, you know, if there's such a thing where you're connected with souls for a reason while we're on this planet, that that we were that group for each other. Um, And I tell you, that's been the rudest awakening is after a bit of time going, Mm -hmm oh my gosh, nobody knows our stories anymore but me. And there's nobody I can really pick the phone up and talk to or connect with or go to about those things. And, you know, really just like an anchor of sorts has been released. And I've had to readjust to that kind of free floating. Um, But I would, I, I, so Basically, when my father, my father had a brain aneurysm and it leaked 
and it was very, very severe. And he was given the warning that either you have surgery, which could leave you paralyzed, or the next time it blows, you know, it, it'll be fatal. So he walked around with that knowledge for three years. And so when it happened, it did happen much like that. And my mother regretted that she ever called the ambulance to come pick him up because basically what ended up happening was him in a neuro ICU with no brain activity. And then we had to take him off of life support. And we were all as, as difficult as our world had been with him. I think, and I, I think this is the gift from my mother, such a deep, um, loving existence. Um, we all, uh, there was a paradigm shift and we were there for him. And even though he may not have been there, maybe he was in the room up in a corner looking down, but we felt deeply. And even with his first aneurysm, you know, I was fresh out of nursing school or maybe even in nursing school then. So I did try to work as an advocate. And I have to tell you, that was the most precious I'd ever seen my dad. When I walked in the room, Mm. he was aphasic. He couldn't, he knew what he wanted to say, but he couldn't say it. And his eyes lit up and he just put his hand arms up and for a hug. And I went to him and I was held by him like I'd never been held before in my life. Um, so yeah, it was interesting that, you know, death gives us those opportunities. Death, death gives us those lessons to, you know, sort through that file cabinet of feelings we may have in there. And it was actually a bit of a blessing to see hmm. that we could be there for him in that way. I'm not sure. I think we would have done the same thing. I think my family, my entire family and my mom would have spearheaded it. We would have rallied within the home mm-hmm. if we could have, if it was felt acceptable. You know, that soul group that you mentioned, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting because when you say death and I have this understanding of death and people may have their own opinions and thoughts about how they'll behave. Although I know that it's, it's kind of like birth, I think maybe in this way too, that you just can never be prepared for it. You can hear about losing people through people that you know, but I don't think anything can prepare you for losing someone. Would you agree with that? I would absolutely agree with it. And I think beautiful work here. You've come full circle. That's what this project is about. I think if you, any preparation at all that you could do would be to listen to people's stories. And, you know, you get to be in the room with them and you get to hear all sorts of possibilities as far as choices. But as we know, you know, we don't know how we're going to die and we don't know how our loved ones are going to die. And, um, the more we hear, you know, we have people that have died suddenly. There was tragic accidents. Um, you know, soon we'll be hearing from someone whose son died of, um, took his own life. And, you know, these mm-hmm. things happen. We can never predict how it's going to interface with us. But by hearing open heartedly people's stories, that informs us. Yeah. And I'm sorry for your losses because I, I hear, you know, it's, I heard that you lost your mother and I heard that you lost your brother, but when you said that you lost your soul group, you know, that really, that hit me in a way that the, the understanding of death itself didn't Mm. because I, I, I can imagine what that's like. Yeah. Yep. It's, you know, you sometimes look, people will post out, I'm an orphan now, you know, and they're 50 mm-hmm. years old or whatever. <laughs> but it's a little, you know, it, it's like, oh, you know, I certainly get that more now, you know, and, and I've got a beautiful life partner and I've got beautiful children, but there's a deep, deep, deep 
um, like you say, anchoring that, that, and, and I'm actually, now I'm going into three years right now, I'm starting to feel, um, a little light. Um, one thing that just came to me with really recently with just doing some writing on my own is how close I had held my own story to protect my mother. And mm. wow, you know, I don't have to your story of your brother. You mean, my do story, you mean your own my whole life? You know what, mm-hmm. what life really, really was. Um, I mean, I wrote a book, I wrote a fiction book and, and I wouldn't let her read it because I was afraid it might hurt her. She's a, she was just that person to many of us. Like you just didn't want to do anything that would cause her pain. And, you know, so, mm-hmm. so yeah. And, and for me thinking about my own story and actually writing more freely in my journal. And it's interesting. We, with my background and the age I am that, that, was still a little piece there that was holding me oh, back yeah. from my authentic self. Oh yeah. And I think it's important for all of us to remember I'm I, all of our stories are imperfect. We're all carrying pain. You know, we're carrying generational pain whether you want to call it that or not, but you know, nobody gets out of here without a little bit of wackadoo that's happened in their lives, right? I mean, come on. Right. So, so we have to, I think the biggest thing is just reminding people there is no arrival to, ah, now everything's going to be great and perfect and Zen, and I'm never going to suffer again. That, you know, it's all about this, this life we're in, if we're going to live it with our hearts and our eyes and our minds wide open, it will be lesson after lesson after lesson. And if nothing else, my mother's death taught me that to hear her on her deathbed, literal, like one foot on the other side, still asking for forgiveness from her children. Becky, where, where can listeners, uh, where would you like to send listeners? I think maybe just the, the easiest way is to go to www. Um, deathdialogues.net. Okay. Okay. And there's, um, yeah, you can find the podcast there. You can find links to social media there. Um, that's probably just a great one stop place. I want to thank you for taking time out of, I know what is a super busy life to, to spend this time with me to talk and share what, what your experience has been with death and to, I guess, for lack of a better description, shed light on something that so many people don't give a lot of thought to. Well, I appreciate so much that you are open with all of these conversations. I mean, you've put the invitation out there to hear some big stories. Um, Oh, I'm so glad that you, you were my guest. I just really feel like it was meant to be. And um, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more information on this episode, photos, community discussion, and other episodes, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks for listening.